Well, providentially, and we're in we're in John chapter six, and providentially, everything the pastor has been saying for the past five weeks is very similar to what we've been saying in this book, chapter six of John. So I want to uh, we're going to focus. I want to really focus on what it means to eat the bread, eat the body of Christ, to drink the blood of Christ. I really want to focus in on what that means to us and how we that's accomplished. Your notes aren't going to accomplish a whole lot uh, uh, because I've changed my mind on how I want to do this. So uh, <coughs> life comes at you fast sometimes. And uh, i just praying about this. I think, think we need to focus on spiritual intimacy. Uh, Melanie and I were talking before about our prodigals and uh, how the prodigals put us on our face before the Lord and on our knees before the Lord. And it's only God's grace that restores a prodigal. And uh, some of you who have been prodigals understand uh, what I'm talking about here. But uh, we have to cultivate a spiritual intimacy with Christ for ourselves and for the benefit of our prodigals because... Okay, here we go. I'll stop. John chapter six. I want to. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the reaction to Jesus's. Remember, he's going to have seven I am's in this book of John. And last week, after we after we talked about the fourth and the fifth sign, we started the first I am, and and the first I am is I am bread. And just as bread is a analogy of physical substance and sustenance, and we have to have food to survive, and we have to nourish our bodies. So Jesus is the spiritual nourishment, and so that's why He calls Himself the bread. And the fact that He calls Himself the I am bread is going to is going to be a part of this whole purpose of this book to show that Jesus is God and He's deity. And this is an evangelistic uh, book. And this book is about believing and trusting and having life and, and having a confidence that Jesus is who He says He is. So He says, I am bread. He's going to say, I'm light. He's going to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and life. I'm the door. And I'm the good shepherd. And this first one is, is the basic component of who Jesus is. He's saying, I, the self-existent, the self-sustaining, God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, I am your substance. And so when he says, I am bread, he is bringing back to the Jews who are following him, who are looking for miracles, who are looking for some outward manifestation, a sign because they're curious, not because they believe, but Jesus gets to the heart and he says, I am physical substance. I am whom you must have intimacy with. I have come to bring God and men together and reconcile God and men in a relationship. And I want us to focus on that relationship today. And I want to look at the the, the rejecters' views and the followers' views. But when he says, I am bread, he is bringing up... Exodus 16. Turn quickly to Exodus 16. Like I said, these notes, uh, uh, take it or leave it or trash them, whatever. But uh, 
Uh, Exodus 16, Jesus is referring to Himself as the I Am of Exodus chapter 4 we talked about last week. And He is saying He is a type of, He is going to be the one that the bread and the manna from heaven point to. Just uh, remember in Exodus 16, the children of Israel have got come out of Egypt and they are uh, going to get the law at the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And of course, the children of, e- of Israel are like us. They whine and they complain and they conveniently forget. Look what they say. And this is just like us. Uh, Look what they said in uh, 16.3. The children of Israel said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you've brought us into the wilderness to kill us and to starve us to death. They conveniently forgot that they were in slavery. They conveniently forgot they had cruel taskmasters. They conveniently forgot the imprisonment of their lives. As we sometimes forget the imprisonment of our lives in our past life when we were not redeemed yet from sin. And they said, oh, I wish we could go back. Oh, we had a good food to eat. And they just conveniently forgot about the struggles. And so Jesus, in His mercy, He's a type of this physical, of spiritual sustenance of which manna is a physical manifestation. So look what God does in His mercy. Look at 16.4. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven and the people are going to go out and gather it and they're going to gather a certain quota every day. Look at this, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And so what He does, He tells them, you need to gather this amount for your family. Don't gather more, don't gather less. And on the sixth day, you need to gather for two days. And so he's testing them to see if they're going to be faithful. Some got what they were told, some got a little more, because they didn't trust and they didn't believe in the provision of God. Okay, And then on the sixth day, if they gathered too much or if they didn't gather enough, they went hungry on the seventh. And if they gathered too much, it molded. And that's just a, what happens when you disobey God. And the whole purpose of this was to provide a physical sustenance that pointed to the more important spiritual sustenance. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting. This, phys, this spiritual sustenance is... Uh, includes the Word of God. It includes prayer. It includes obedience. All these components of spiritual intimacy. And it is very. It is not ironic that Jesus, when he was tempted, he quoted from Deuteronomy. The the uh, the, the devil said, "Take these stones and make it physical sustenance." And Jesus didn't deny that he was hungry, hadn't eaten for forty days. But he says, "Man shall not live by." Physical sustenance, bread alone, but by what? Every word of God that proceeds from His mouth. And He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. So go to 8.3, uh, uh, go to 8.3, Deuteronomy. 
Again, Jesus is the bread. He is the spiritual sustenance to which the physical manna pointed to. And so we see this again, God speaking, and this is what Jesus quoted from. But look, I'll just go ahead and just take this in context. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. Every command which I command you today, be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and possess the land the Lord swore to your fathers and you'll remember the the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart. God knows what's in our heart. He wants to reveal to us what's in our hearts, right? Whether you would keep His commandments or not, so He humbled you, He allowed you to hunger, and He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He what what might name known to you that a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is the spiritual pointing to what this physical is a representative of. And so we see Jesus is the bread of life. And then we looked at, He said He's the true bread as we finished last week. So if you have 13, we're, we're almost finished with 13. I want to spend two seconds on this. We, we went over all this, but I want to look at 6, John 6, and we're almost finished this section, and I want you to look at verses... Again, Jesus describes who He is, the true bread from heaven, not just the physical, but the spiritual to which the physical points. John 6.35 And we said this about the true bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And we said, we talked about Jesus being the truth, true bread, and we looked at these, I believe there's five, uh, one, two, three, four, five principles we looked at last week. And the first thing we said was what? About the true bread. Must be drawn by the Father. And He emphasizes this over and over and over again. It's exactly what Terry's been discussing in Romans 9, that it is a sovereign work of God, that He draws the people to Himself, that He's chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And we talked about the covenant of redemption last week. And so Jesus said the true bread must be drawn you must be drawn to the true bread Himself, and you must be drawn to the Father. And we looked at all the verses, 37, 38, 39, 44, and then we looked all over John at the, at the fact that God is sovereign in the drawing of a people to Himself, and they will come to the true bread with Jesus Christ. Then we said that, what was the second thing that we said? We said that the bread satisfies... 
And that is not physical satisfaction, but it is spiritual satisfaction. Just like you have to continue to eat because you get hungry, you have to continue to feed on Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And His provision satisfies our soul. And I just want to ask me, and I want to ask you, is your, what does it mean to have your soul satisfied? So that you don't hunger or thirst. What is that? That's a theological concept that, that that may not mean a lot to a lot of people. I trust it does us. What does it mean that the bread of life satisfies us? I think it has something to do with um, filling up your soul. Kind of like the idea of um, like the leaven, okay? It'll fill it up and leave no space for anything else to get in there and just keep it to where that's all you sustain yourself on. And what does that look like? If your soul is satisfied in Christ, uh, what does that look like? And how does that help you deal with world and issues and problems and politics and everything we have to deal with. If your soul is satisfied in Christ, what does that look like in your day to day? It lets you know that you shouldn't be overly concerned with everything in the world because it's temporary and you only can turn Jesus and you just can't get enough rest. So there's a peace and there's a rest. And I just want us to focus on this a contentment and there is a lack of complaint and there's a lack of whining and there is a lack of worry and there is a lack of anxiety. If you are satisfied in Christ, that means you're content with your life, right? And if you are sick or if your spouse is sick or if your car don't run, ask Russell and Sally, it don't matter. It's a temporary, temporary, passing away problem that makes you fall on your face and trust the Lord, isn't it? That's what, that's what life is be to a soul-satisfied person. What else? Well, I mean, just, and you've already got it up here, but it, the, it is the peace that passes understanding. It's not, you can't understand that. And it's inexplicable. And it is always in associated with... When it says don't be anxious over anything but in everything, by what? Prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. I think, and I've told this to my group, and I've told this to myself because I've lived it, we need to be a thankful people. And when you're thankful, you don't want anything else. I don't want to look at anything else. I don't want to be, I want to set my mind on Christ, Colossians. I want to be satisfied in Him so the, the, the world and the, and the elements of the world and the things of the world and the money and the power don't, don't mean anything to us. They shouldn't because that passes away and it's all a lie. It's marketing. It's all an illusion what this world has to offer. Yes, Doc?
You don't need to be forgiven of anything. You take your time. Christ is my life. And that realization bring in all that He's everything. Yeah, and I think you look, and I think this is what he's saying too, is that you look, when you look at anything, it's through that. In other words, you know, when we go to move, the first thing we need to do is sit down and we pray about it. You know, if there's anybody that's upset me, I sit down and pray about it. I don't go and and talk about them to somebody else. If there's um, some difficulty that we're having in our lives, just as prodigals, we, we get on our knees about it. You know, everything needs to have the reflection of Christ. That that's just an automatic. I think it's just an automatic way that you look at it. Then it's good. You know, good. All these are right answers. Any other have a, a different take, another slant that's important to you? Yes, sir. Spiritual uh, discernment about all decisions of life. If you're content with the bread from heaven, Christ, and He's everything, then you're going to eliminate covetousness. You're going to eliminate envy, and you're going to in, you're going to uh, if you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you love your neighbor. If Christ is everything, everything you've done is through that filter. And nothing else that's offered compares. It's a temporary, it's a fleeting, but there's horrible consequences to it. Being satisfied by Him. Yes, somebody else say something? I just wanted to comment. My mentor sits in front of me, says to me all the time, it's belief. Is what? Belief. belief. And I think that's been a struggle for me, is if I really believe... That Christ is my all. If I really believe, because that's what this passage is talking about. They're like, well, what works must I do? And that's where I tend to land sometimes. It's like I got to do something. And it's 29. And stay put is what I hear, but it took me a long time to understand what that meant. Am I supposed to stand still? Am I supposed to sit in the chair? What does it mean to stay put? And part of that is really wrestling with fact is do I believe that God is sufficient? Is he enough to meet all my needs? Is it enough to not be controlled by people or by fear? I mean like like your children and having them wayward or having them reject you or feeling like you don't do enough. You know when people are so big and God is so small, I think it's more for me, it's a belief issue is at the basic basis of it, and if I believe that God is who he says he is, it is easier for me to follow him through desert times when I don't feel as connected, and I've been through one of those recently, because it's not that he's not faithful, it's just that my belief is not strong, and my prayer is help in my unbelief, because I think that's probably my greatest struggle. I can be grateful. Like when it rained on me yesterday out of nowhere and Jean's like, this is the rain. I'm like, it's not going to rain. It's not on my weather. (laughs) 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 And I was looking at the water in the garden by hand and everything and I was like, 
Well, God, I am so grateful. I felt like you just rained it on top of me. But that, that passage in your night is so grounded that it's like, oh, okay, it's okay. Amen. Anyway, Amen. That makes sense. Hey, yes, sir. Can I just say one thing about what she just mentioned? Yes. But the, she, she says how it's easy, but I actually find that to be the hardest thing to do. To what? To believe a lot of times because it seems like um, man has made a lot of rational thoughts and beliefs. And it seems sometimes, and I believe this is also what the bread is referring to, it's like you feel that everything else out there, because it has so many hoops for you to jump through, that that must be the answer. And you struggle to get that answer just to find out that it's empty. But in Christ, it's simple. It's hard, but it's simple. And it's the simplicity that makes it so hard because God just wants you to believe. And everyone has a feeling of, but I've got to do something. And that's where you kind of start to say, yep. well, may, maybe I believe, but I should do, or maybe I should not, or whatever. And that's when it becomes difficult. Those are truths. Part of our sin nature. Thank you. Third thing we talked about, none will be lost. Remember the fragments we talked about in sign in lesson sign four. Uh, the, the the spiritual understanding of that verse is after Jesus had miraculously taken the five loaves of bread and the two small fishes and had fed twenty thousand people, he instructed his disciples to gather up all the fragments so that none of the fragments are lost. That is the spiritual meaning of this. None will be lost. All the fragments are going to be gathered. When Jesus says, uh, you've, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Jesus is authentic when He says, All ye who labor and are heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. That's a general, that is a legitimate that is a that is a sincere offer to all men. Come unto me. If you are thirsty, come for drink. If you are hungry, come for nourishment. It is a sincere offer. And the truths that we must camp on is that all those who have been called by God will come to God and not one of them will be lost. When we talk about the lost coin, when we talk about the lost sheep, you see the effort that the Good Shepherd, which we get to in chapter 10, goes to to find His lost sheep. And that is an encouragement to those of us whom we've talked about who have wanderers out there. That if they're there, if they're His, He will find them. He will find them. So none will be lost, those who come to the Father, those who have been called by the Father. None will be lost. And then, uh, I love this, none will be rejected who come and seek Him. If you seek Him with your whole heart, He says He will be found. So none will be rejected if they seek Him 
But we know that God got, has to enable you to seek Him. But if He enables you to seek Him, you will not be rejected. He never says no to those who in faith trust Him. So we see all this about the true bread. And then the last thing that we talked about uh, is, uh, is, and this is what theologians call particular redemption. Or it can be called other things. I like this phraseology best. But it simply says that God's will is that Jesus came to this earth for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is this and this alone, to die for His people. He did not come to make an offer of salvation that did not actually save anybody. He came and His death secured the death of all the Father gave Him. And not one of those the Father gave Him will be lost. He will not be frustrated. He will not be discouraged. If you believe the other way, that it's a broad way and it goes halfway, and the work of Christ is dependent on whether or not you come to Him. It is a narrow bridge that goes all the way across, and it actually accomplishes the salvation of all of His people. It says this, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all He has given me, I will lose none, and I will raise them up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So we understand that Jesus' death, the purpose of His death, burial, and resurrection was to save His people. Not just to make it possible, but and not to save anybody, but depending upon a wicked, depraved man, but he actually came to accomplish all that he ever was called to do, and he did it. And he will be successful. He will not be thwarted. So we can have great confidence that this true bread from heaven is the self-existent one. Okay? Everybody understand that? Everybody understand that. It is particular the purpose for why He came. And we don't know to whom He came for, but we share the truth and we preach the gospel and it is our prayer that God will bring faith to that person as He hears the Word of God and as the Spirit of God gives him life. Everybody understand that? Pretty self-explanatory. Now I want to get to what I want to talk about and... We sort of talked about it. And then there is a reaction. There's always a reaction to Jesus. And in these chapters, 1 through 12, the overwhelming reaction to Jesus is rejection. And in chapter 7, 6, and 7, the rejection is crystallized and it is brought to forbearance. And it is obvious that Jesus' rejection by the Jews, by the Pharisees, is going to be the response of most of the people. And then we're going to see 13 through 18, those who come to Christ, those who've been called by Christ, accept Christ, 
Christ, and then we'll see the drastic difference between the intimacy of Christ and His disciples in the foreignness and the rejection of unbelievers to Christ's claims. And so we see in 41 through uh, the rest of this chapter, we actually see... uh, a big difference between the rejectors and the acceptors. And uh, it's very, uh, the first thing we need to look at, and, and, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and go off my notes for this for some strange reason. Verse 60. The rejectors hate Jesus, and it's culminated in 7.1. Uh, uh, even his family didn't believe in him. Uh, they didn't accept him, and they seek to kill him because of some of the things he says. They're rejectors. The rejectors have an obvious response, and these those who are his, the followers, have an objective response. But look at what Jesus says in verse 60. Uh, this is what the disciples say. Though many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? These are not his twelve disciples. These are followers of Jesus that had probably come from being followers of John the Baptizer. And they were various other people who had followed Jesus. And they were externally, they appeared to be disciples as opposed to the crowd who were just coming for signs and wonders. So, so, the, so they say, and they say this rightly, the words of Christ, they're difficult to understand, and they are. And the words of Christ offend people. Look what he says in verse 61. And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, Does what I say offend you? We need to understand that when we share gospel truth with people, or when we counsel people, or when we, wherever our life, and when we're at work, when we're in political conversations, the word of God offends people. Okay? Be aware of that. You are going, you are fighting against aliens from another planet when you start talking about the Word of God. They're going to look at you and they're going to be offended by the words of the Lord. They're offended by the claims of the Lord. They're offended by the exclusiveness of the Lord. They're offended by the, by the Word of God that says we're sinners. Men are offended by that. And so these people, they were offended by the words of God. And, and, and so we also know we need to understand that these words Words are hard and they're offensive to people. Second thing we need to know is that the words of God must be brought to life by the Spirit of God. We see that in chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nada. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And there are some of you who do not believe. So when we're talking to men, when we see rejectors of the Lord, the words are difficult, yes. They are offensive, yes. But we need to understand that they must be understood spiritually. And if you are not one of His, they will not be understood. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? The longest discourse upon upon God's words and the reaction of people and the abilities of men to understand. Uh, and it is frustrating to us, but we need to understand everything has to be spiritually discerned. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. I'm not going to read all this. It's lengthy. Just give you an idea. Have you ever experienced this? And this is what all rejectors of Christ have in common. 
But we keep on preaching the truth and we keep on praying for them and we keep on asking God's Spirit to intervene and change them. For the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, it's the power of God and the salvation. And the only difference is it is God who works in us to believe. It's His work that we believe. And so our reaction to His Word, it is the power of God in the salvation. And it's not foolishness to us. And the only thing that separates the two in our response is God and His work in our hearts and in our lives. So we understand that. And and Paul goes on to say, uh, uh, if you look at... uh, uh, look at 21. Just for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom didn't know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Here we are, Jew friends. For Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jew and it's foolishness to the Greeks. But to those of us who are internally called by the irresistible call of the Spirit, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the dynamite of God and the wisdom of God. So we thank Him that He's opened our eyes. And then we see... uh, if we see, we see this, verse 10, chapter, six, uh, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2.10, But God has revealed to us through His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man? Even so, one who knows the things of God except what? The Spirit of God. And we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. And so if you can't... If the Spirit's not working, you cannot understand or believe the works of God. So that's what he's talking about here. And then, uh, so what is he, what is the wording that's so difficult? And what is the words that these folks are stumbling over? You know, the words are hard and they're offensive. And there's several things in this context that the people are having a hard time with. The first thing they're having a hard time with, and the words that are difficult and offensive, they're having a hard time with the origin of Christ. They think how? How are they thinking? In their physical, limited minds, with the inability, they're thinking, he's just a man. We know his mom is dad. He was a carpenter. He's from, he's from Nazareth. We know his mom and his dad. We know his brothers and his sisters. So they, in their limited understanding, think he's just a man. How can he be this bread from heaven? Right? They don't understand Him. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that He says, I've come from heaven? They just see physically. They're blinded to the spiritual nature of who Christ is. They think of Him only as a a man, a good man, a prophet, a learned man, a scholar, they think. They respect His ability to speak and teach, and they're awed by who He is, but they cannot come to grips the fact that He's fully God and fully man. Because that was does what to their teaching and to their Scripture? There's one God. How can Jesus be God? There's only one God. We know who He is. Moses taught us about Him. So how can this Jesus be God as He claims to be? He's from heaven. So they don't understand His origin, that it's from heaven. 
and that He is claiming to be God and man. So that's hard for them. And they can't believe it. It goes against what they have been taught, what they think. They can't grasp the spiritual nature and the reality of who Jesus is. So they fail to understand that. That's not any different than it is today. Because you can talk to people, a lot of people about God. But as soon as you say Jesus, it just changes the whole demeanor of the person that you're talking with. And I think that's why it's, he's saying exactly what he's saying in here. It's, you know, they, and when they talk about the bread and the blood, they can't get beyond the physical. Can't get beyond the physical. Blood, how we're going to... How are we going to break his blood? And they don't go to the extent of thinking of the Trinity that exactly. Jesus is God. And they can't separate. People can't do it today either. Still can't. Yes, Miss Sally. They couldn't do it in that day because they've heard and read about people just like him coming before him. Elijah, Moses, all these other people that thought were chosen. The one... Even his predecessor, John the Baptist, you know, the baptizer. Excellent. What, what makes him so different? What makes Jesus Christ exclusive? And they were looking for him as the a Messiah, as a physical king. Yes, ma'am. Uh, to me, the main objection, I think, in this section is the fact they didn't comprehend and I think it's difficult for us even as believers to fully comprehend what is meant by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. That's and they say, good my heavens, are we talking about uh, cannibalism here? What is this now that he's saying to us? Sally is always ahead of me in her thinking. <laughs> The second thing that which is very important, they didn't they get his don't get his origin, they don't get his words. And his words are verse fifty, like Sally just said. This is a bread which come down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. They couldn't understand his words. They didn't understand the spiritual meaning of it. Remember to a Jew. Every Jew has been trained since he's been bar mitzvahed that Leviticus 17 says what? What is Leviticus 17, 10 through 14? That's right. People have asked me before, why was it necessarily for the blood? The blood is the life. The life of Jesus is His sacrificial, atoning, representative work on the behalf of us. And without the shedding of that blood, there's no covering for sin. But Jews have been taught, you don't eat blood. You don't, you don't eat a medium-rare steak. Leviticus, they understood that these words were offensive to them because they violated the law. They had every reason to be offended by that if he was talking about physical eating, right? But he's not talking about physical, he's talking about spiritual. So they're offended at his words because his words in their understanding violated the Scripture. 
Because it's very clear, even in Acts, remember when there was an argument about how to deal with Jews and Gentiles and and, and what laws to to prohibit? One of the things that James said in his compromise was, we're going to command that they still not eat blood. That was still one of the basic accoutrements that was kept in the uh, requirement for the Jews and the uh, Gentiles to coexist. So it was very important to the Jew that he understood that you don't eat blood. You pour out the blood. You don't eat the blood. And I'll let you read that in Leviticus 17 because the life is in the blood. And so these words offended them and they couldn't comprehend, as Sally said, that he was talking spiritually, not physically. So those are the words uh, that they are struggling with. And uh, and so uh, that's what is the rejectors struggle with the origin and they struggle with the words of Christ. And so to them, they would understand what Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They would understand this to be cannibalism. They would understand this to be a prohibition of the law. Okay? So they would understand it that way. That's why they were offended by it. But you know, uh, if I could say this... Uh, Old Testament blood never did a thing. But it's looking forward to that blood, and this is the contrast that Jesus is trying to set up. Yes. He had the blood of bulls and goats. Points to. But that is past. Yes. I am shedding my blood that takes away doesn't cover it takes away the sin of the world and there is a huge difference in the two types there atonement was the Old Testament which covered it covered in the New Testament it takes it away like the day of atonement it was taken outside of the camp it was removed. And so he's pointing to he is pointing back to the Old Testament, which is pointing to him, prefigures him, as the Passover does, as the shedding of the blood of the animals all does. Excellent. Good. Understood. Thanks for bringing that in closer focus. Yes. So they would have thought it would be cannibalism. Today, modern denominations understand this wrongly too. They think that taking of the body of Christ, eating the bread and drinking the wine, Catholics I've been practicing this word all week. A Catholic and an Eastern Orthodox believer actually believe that the wafer and the blood at the Eucharist actually become the body of Christ. Thousands of martyrs were killed. This was so important. When the husk, and these are the world in the Box's Book of Martyr, they did not believe that the wafer and the blood literally became the body of Christ but the Catholics, the popes taught this and still do that the wafer and the blood actually become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and you are actually eating 
the, the, these figures that turn into the body of Christ. And they believe this to this day. They still misunderstand this Scripture. And so what Luther did, he said, well, I'm going to break off from this. He's saying, he said that uh, it doesn't become the body and the bread of Christ, but it is present in and it coexists with. So he brought it down a notch, but he still was, we think, as we look back, we still think that is wrong. We believe it to be, not the, but we believe it to be figurative. We believe it to be an institution to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We believe that in this church. And so we don't misunderstand it this way like the Catholics still do. We don't believe it this way still like the Lutherans do. And some old reformers still believe it this way. But we believe it, I think, biblically that it is a remembrance. It is an institution Christ set up so we remember His work Okay, on the cross as we look back and we look forward. Everybody understand that? The Jews misunderstood it completely. They misunderstood what all the typing of the blood was and the difference between the two. Does everybody understand that? So they are offended. Look what the rejectors do. They are offended. And because they're offended, they fall away. Look what the disciples said, uh, those who had followed Jesus Jesus said, does this offend you? Jesus said, I'm going to do you one more than this. If what I'm saying about spiritual intimacy with me offends you, how are you going to be... What, he says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? That implies, if you're offended that you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, how are you going to react when I am made a sin offering and I die on that cross? When I become sin... For men, and I become cursed to hang on a tree. If this offends you, how are you going to react when I die as a criminal on a cruel cross? Okay? Always getting to the heart of people, right? And he says, if what this is offends you, what, what are you going to do when you see the Messiah dying on a cruel cross? So they're offended and they fall away. Look what they said. Look what the uh, look where I am. It said, and then it says, uh, from that time many of his disciples. Verse sixty six. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And what does the Scripture say? It talks all about it in Hebrews, about warnings to fall away. And in 1 John 2.19, He said, They went up, they were with us, they were among us, but they didn't continue with us. Right? 1 John 2.19, let me, uh, this is what He talks about. Those who, who claim Christ from external, you would think they were. But when we came to it, it says, Look at 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they may be manifested that they were not really one of us. Right? Those who are drawn by the Father are preserved by the Father. And those whom the Father calls, a son dies for, will eventually and finally 
be preserved, and it's called the perseverance of the saints. It is, it is part of the work of God in salvation. You can't lose salvation because it's God's salvation. And so these disciples proved that they weren't really gods because they fall away. And so it is today. And that's what is a characteristic of this age. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes back, will He really find true faith? Many, many say, I know you, I know you. The question is, not do we know Him, the question is, does He know us? Right? And so, the rejectors are offended and they fall away, which gives evidence that they never were a part of the body of Christ, but they were, they were sign seekers and they were curious, they were curious but it wasn't mixed in God-given faith. Okay? And so we see the rejectors. And then in the contrast to the rejectors, we see the followers, the true followers, those whom have been drawn by the followers, by the Father, those who have been reserved, those whom Christ has died for, we see a stark contrast to them as opposed to the rejectors. We understand spiritual things. And so look at the, uh, look at the, uh, the followers. We know, first of all, that they are drawn by the Father. We've said that. We've implied that. And we understand that to be a true follower. You have to be drawn by the Father. We're not going to reiterate that. But we see, look at their response 45b and 37 through 40, the response of true followers is that they are able... Look at 45. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who is heard and learned from the Father. So true followers are drawn by the Father and they are taught by God. Their eyes are, under, are opened and they understand spiritual things. They understand they're lost. They need a Savior. They understand they need to be reconciled by God. So that is a work of God and they are taught by God. And God uses this instrument to teach men and that is His Word. And that's what we understand. A true follower. And then we're going to talk about... Uh, I just want to camp out on this. And I've got four or five questions here about spiritual... The meaning of 53 through 58 is, is a beautiful thing. I want, you to, I want to read it. Jesus said to them, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He eats this bread will live forever." So, spiritual intimacy is what Jesus is talking about here. And I have a few questions that I want to ask me and I want to ask you. And this is the focal point of what I want to talk about here. 
What does it mean to eat the flesh and drink the blood? What does that mean? Saturated. We brought that up. We've got a key word in here. Abiding. That's John 15. And we'll get into that in great detail. It's the vine and the branch is what he's trying to get across. Me and you, you and me. We the branches must draw our substance from the root, Jesus Christ, right? We can't bear fruit without the root supplying the substance. It all comes from the root. We are attached to the root, the vine, and that attachment bears fruit. And so it is a part of what we were talking about. The root, the root bears you, you don't bear the root. Don, I think too, there's an implication there's a what? Implication or maybe a truth of an exchange to life. Give up what you are and take in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But the life that I do live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for Him. So spiritual intimacy is dying to yourself. And living to Him, spiritual intimacy is 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 a part of dying. And one thing that I was talking to a guy the other day, and he asked me what that meant, and I told him, "Not yield your members." And he said, "What does that mean?" When it talks about this in Romans six, still probably remember it. it's been maybe a year ago, literally. What does it mean if we if we have a spiritual intimacy with Christ? How does that? What does this mean? Not to yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. If you have an intimacy with Christ, this is going to be one of your characteristics. What does that mean? Living in the flesh. Living in the flesh. How do you become an instrument of sin, Gene? Well, you give your body over to those like Russell just says, the desires of the flesh. It's because we haven't recognized what happened at the cross. At the cross, God judged who we were in Adam. That's the last part of Romans 5, and then you get into 6. And you find out that God isn't going to have anything to do with that. God doesn't just say, well, Sally, I'm going to make you so sweet and good in your old nature. Because there's not a thing in the old nature that God can use. So what does he do? Well, he takes you and me to the cross with him. And on that cross, he judged sin in our flesh. The problem with me and maybe somebody else is I don't seem to really believe that. I don't believe it enough that I will yield myself to my new nature. And if we yield ourselves, then God can use. It doesn't mean that it's gonna that old nature's gonna disappear. But Amen. we still have a, a tendency to We have a proneness to wonder 
Lord, we have a proneness to leave the God I love. And if we could lose our salvation, we most certainly would. But the, this, this, yes. I keep it simple. Okay. I, to me, taking communion—that's what we're talking about here. I'm gonna write what you're saying down, so it better be right. <laughs> it makes me remember what Sally just said at the cross and what it cost for me to have the right to call Him my Savior. It really, it really ties that a real tight knot for me when I take communion and remember that my Lord suffered and died on that cross. And he had me on his mind when he died on the cross. And he tells us in verse 51 that he is going to do that very he is going to do it. Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. It's going to happen, isn't it? He's started the work. He's going to finish it. And we know what this fancy word is. And it's this word right here. And we know that this salvation, this sanctification uh, happens. We are set apart by God one time event. But the main jigs of process, sanctification. We work, He works in us. He gives us the desire to work. He gives us the energy to work. And He causes us to desire Him. And this is what spiritual intimacy is. That's what it means to eat and to drink. And it is more than anything to me, and I'm going to put my little thing up there, Dwayne has remembered the cost to have the right to call Him my Savior. I really focus on relationship and that He's my Father and I love Him and I want to please Him. And my Savior is my Lord. He's my Master and my God and He's bought me and I'm not my own. And I'm to glorify God in my body. And so when these things happen, as Sally said... We're to come back to it's a relationship, right? And I don't obey God because I have to. I want to. He changed my want to, and He changed my desire, and I want to please Him. And it breaks my heart, and I repent of it when I break the relationship and I confess it. And that's what He's. This is spiritual intimacy. It's a process. And how do you? This we want a microwave oven effect, but this spiritual intimacy. There's only three ways to develop intimacy in your life, and that's by the Word and through prayer and through obedience. Right? As the Spirit leads you. Can't do it. Excellent. 
The flesh is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And so you can't please God in your flesh. That's why none of our fleshes that we presently live in are going to enter glory. Can't be in His presence, right? Nice quotes. Good. We understand this? Spiritual intimacy. Does this apply to you? Are you motivated? Uh, Andrew Murray said, loving God is equal to loving His Word. And I just want to challenge me and you to reunite with His Word, to love His Word, so we can say, like the psalmist, how I love your law, how I love your Word. And if your summer is, is predominantly difficult, we're busy, we're going places, we got all this consuming, with all this stuff, everything. And the challenge is to keep, as the Spirit, as we're walking in the Spirit, to keep the intimacy through the Word and through prayer, and through serving, okay? You know, I think, Don, that it comes really, it comes really easy to make, like getting up and having time with the Lord, a habit. Because, I mean, I, 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 I do. That's like the first, I get up at 3.50 in the morning so that I can get up, I can spend time in the Word, and then I can go work out and get ready for work and all that. But what i found one day was I'm like this this is just becoming a habit to me it's like I get up this is what I'm supposed to do and so I really began to pray and I would say Lord I want you to create in me a true desire for your word and I cannot tell you how exciting that I would see things in his word that I've read so many times before and it would just pleasure my heart and I just cannot tell you how what joy Filled me when I when I just really began to pray, create a desire in me for that. You know that is eating the flesh and drinking the blood, and it's process, and it uh, it changes you. That's what it does. It 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 transforms your mind and it conforms you to Christ. That's what it does. Comments or questions? We're off the clock. Thank You, Father, that You've drawn us to Yourself. Thank You that Your words are spiritually discerned, and You, it is Your work that we are able to spiritually discern them. Lord, may we this week focus on intimacy with You, relationship with You. May we desire You. May we be like that deer who pants after the water brook. May our hearts truly desire you. Thank you for Melanie's testimony, and I know it's testimony of many in this room. And I also know there's many in this room that have become a little cold, a little indifferent, that haven't fellowshiped and had the intimacy with you that they need because of stuff and because of the world. And help us to refocus on you and, and, and confess. And I pray that we would draw nigh to you and you would help us, especially during this difficult season. Uh, of this summer and all the different things that challenge us and stress us and, and, and demand our, our hearts and our loyalties. May we feed on you and drink your blood, uh, metaphorically speaking, so that we'll draw to you and uh, hold us and keep us and preserve us and help us to be faithful. In your name I pray. Amen.